Osiris. everyone to the great beyond feels like forever since we've done one of these quote unquote studio episodes since we got our podcast taken over by the goose girls but it's good to have the boys back once again well not quite the boys are back for now (laughs) damn uh we had such a positive response from our goose girls takeover that we had to put brucey in the corner for today's interview nobody puts Um, baby in the corner Get back in the corner. We interviewed uh, D. James Goodwin, producer of the new Goose album, Dripfield, dropping on 624 with Karina, yeah. the best of the best. Yeah, I mean, it was great to have Karina. She really did like genuinely crush it with her interview with Alicia Carlin, and we really couldn't wait to have her back. So why not bring her back in the very next episode? Um, I mean, listening to that episode they did, it was truly like, I mean, she's one of the best interviews in the game. I, I haven't seen anything like it, uh, you know, outside of me and you, Greg, of course. Right. I mean, yeah. true. But Karina, while we can learn from her team player, positivity, asking such poignant questions, so much insight, really, really just a breath of fresh air at the great beyond. Um, yeah. Anyway, Bruce, with, um, with her insight. She really, she really knows more about the band than I think anyone we could ever have as a co-host on this podcast. Definitely. Um, and yeah. although like she's slightly younger than you and I, um, far more wisdom than both of us combined. Wait, I was yeah. getting introduced here by Greg, and I'm going <laughs> to take that space, you know, to say I, this is this is an affront to me, you know, to my skill as an interviewer. My skill as a podcaster, I've been in the trenches with you guys. And now Karina comes gallivanting in, prancing in, if you will, to take over my spot because of one good interview and another interview that I, out of principle, have not listened to. So there's only one. There's only one. Okay, and I haven't listened to it out of principle. You know, I I feel very strongly about this podcast in very certain ways. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Maybe she's a beacon of positivity compared to Bruce. (laughs) Maybe Bruce is perpetually miserable. I don't think that should have an effect on what we're doing here together as a team. This is a team effort. Check out Goose's uh, Hunger Site video now on YouTube based on a true story. And stick around. Oh, we're just going to (laughs) change the subject now. Okay. (laughs) No, it's fine. No, I want them to check out the the video has thousands of views. So, yeah, but no, we're going to replace we're going to replace the man in the video with thousands of views on YouTube. That's um, you've got I mean, you were mentioned in Rolling Stone for your method acting. I was and I did have to get into character for it took numerous days in advance uh, yeah. for me to to get to that point. 56 years in the making of getting that character ready. 
this I'm I'm quitting this podcast. I'm not going to be replaced and going to leave on my own accord. That's how what a principled man does. And that's I think that's what I'm going to do. I'll have to discuss this after this episode. Big shout out (laughs) to our guest host, Karina Emmer. I'm so happy to have her on today. So stick around for our discussion with Mr. Goodwin. But first, let's check out what's going on in the news. So huge week here in Birdland. Uh, Radio City is about to slap this weekend. We'll be back at least some iteration. <laughs> some iteration of this team will be back live next week uh, to talk about uh, all things Radio City, but also just coming to you after um, a scorching Bonnaroo set. So glad the guys finally made it there. Yeah, and so glad that they crushed it there by all accounts. Um, unfortunately, we still haven't heard this set. I hope, I'm hoping they have something special prepared maybe a video premiere coming um, from this set, but I know we're not the only ones that are really eager to hear it. And again, by all accounts from people who were there, it sounded like a rager and the set list, you know, speaks for itself. Yeah, definitely. And also, also in the news, uh, the guy's got a relics cover. It's a huge deal. Sure did. Yeah. Greg hasn't stopped talking about the article. I heard it's all the PR. It's all marketing, man. It's kind of like a rude Goldberg machine of marketing and PR that just ends up everything. <laughs> if anything, just I'm, a, I'm a Whoopi Goldberg uh, machine. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I mean, there's a big team uh, that works with this uh, this band, right? Um, and I uh, think that's yeah, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, I think and, that's what uh, they are. You know, it all came together. I just you know was here to check the facts and whatever. Um, I did, however, you know organized bruce's appearance in the hunger side video because i knew true to character you know again, you know again i know we're trying to lean back on this it's like oh you know an olive branch to bruce but it's not working it really isn't um big shout out to the folks at relics though um you know love the spot for the guys the, the picture on the front is great peter's in like a tablecloth i think you can find on like the Coles yes. website or a better home and gardens something you know something like that who do make fire white better home and gardens make fire white tea and jasmine candles by the way i'm out for a sponsorship wherever i can get it those candles slap woodwick baby only um we had that at legend valley yeah, woodwick sprucing all day, up the for trail sure. the gray that's, wolf that's was, not even a question woodwick. the gray wolf smelled so fragrant at legend valley it's just i had to bring that fragrance back to my apartment so shout out to better home and gardens who also apparently made peter shirt for the uh, relics photo shoot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, the Martha Stewart collection um, Joey let's talk about some stuff we like more uh, like dogs in a pile um, <laughs> we, we got to see them on their official stepping up ceremony uh, graduating to the main stage at the Capitol Theater opening for being talking fish whole bunch of energy in that room so lit I didn't even see Joey yeah right <laughs> We were, well, we were there. Out. We knew Bruce wasn't there, though. Yeah. <laughs> For I mean, no wonder it was. Uh, no, that's too easy. Anyway, yeah, don't don't even say my, that. My, uh, my dad came. It was the first time at the cap. I really just mainly wanted him to see the venue. We caught uh, Big Shrimp at Garcia's. Uh, Shout but out to the Shrimpy I, Boys. I, I did want him to see Dogs in a Pile just because, you know, this band's going to blow up, and I wanted him to hear it first from me before, you know. They take over the cover of Relics or something like that. But uh, yeah, the Cap Show was awesome. There was a huge crowd that showed up just for dogs, too. Like, 
you know, we were maybe five, six rows back in GA and like the whole crowd in front of us was going nuts. Opened with can't wait for tonight. And the boys, the uh, boys are back in town. Jeez. I'm reading our intro. Uh, <laughs> the dogs are back in town. The lyric. Yep. yep. Shouted, wow. Clever. Shouted. That is clever. Um, yeah. It was fantastic. It was really, <laughs> it was great. Um, what's the, it's like, uh, Bruce, you would have been like the Muppet Statler and Waldorf. Just mm, uh, the old men there. sitting in one of those little, yeah, one of those little perches on in, on the yeah, side of the Capitol Theater, dude. I've always wanted to do that because Hate that it. is, yeah, that's where I need <laughs> well, to be, you know. You for know, that show, cool. they they had a sign up by the um, uh, bull call that was like a hundred bucks. You get the presidential suite. It's twenty five dollars a person, basically, if you have four people up. So I was like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They so do the hook up those deals. Uh, I, yeah. I think when I went to go see. Um, Mount Joy, when Getty was working with them, um, Getty uh, was lighting them up at the cap, and that they had some deal with like $25 to get into VIP or something like that. Look, the cap, and I agree with you, Joey, just getting your father to the cap, it's just such a it's such a hallmark venue, and, and I've always been so grateful it's, it's so close to us, because they not only get so many good artists, but it's just such a such a cool venue to go to, and it always has this vibe about it um and definitely something that anybody in the northeast if you get an opportunity to go see a band you like there or just can scoot over there and you know during the week and check out some new music man the cap's great and so is garcia's the bar next to it and obviously goose has a long history there also i'm still hoping one day get a multi-night run at the cap for goose sure Um, that'll be fire if and when it does happen uh but yeah, it's, it's just such a great venue, man. It's smart to get clap points with your dad, you know, convince him that this podcasting oh, yeah. thing is worth doing. I'm not completely yeah. convinced anymore. <laughs> I don't have the support of my team behind me, but yeah, you know, it's it's good. It's good to convince people that. I've been borrowing clap, yeah. clap points from my dad for years. <laughs> Still am. Can never repay you, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, Dogs in the Pile crushed it. Incredible show. Um, they are, are actually going to be at Bailey Beach in... Rowayton, Connecticut, um, also known as Norwalk. Uh, but they'll be at Bailey Beach on 626, just the day yeah. right after uh, Radio City. So you want some beachside tunes and a nice little golden coast of Connecticut community. Head down to Bailey Beach and opening oh. for dogs is Jed, Jeff Arevalo's project uh, with Kieran and Previn Edwards uh, and uh, New Homie on bass, um, Jeff on drums. Uh, Man, I know, that sounds good. Yeah. Jed, so Jed, Jed slaps, and the Edwards brothers are young kids. Man, they, they uh, um, Kieran has a band, Residual Groove. Uh, mm-hmm. Kieran and Previn are both in this band. Jed uh, with Jeff, and um, their bassist, whose name we can't remember, slaps. He's absolutely He's nasty. New. Oh, is he? They, they picked up a new one. Yeah, the guy. Uh, the the <laughs> the guy. Played with them um, <laughs> when they opened for Elephant Proof at uh, at Park City uh, last month, and oh, great bass yeah. player. Oh, I yeah. cannot wait to get his name. No, we will. <laughs> we will. We're going to rectify our errors here yeah. um, when we once we do. But Bailey Beach, that was also a place Goose played a hell of a show way back when, and it Midnight is Midnight North, right? They opened yeah, for open for Midnight North, and uh, I think, oh god, I think that might have been. 
Uh, I can't remember. I heard a f- one of their first times, song, a big song now that they played for the first time in that show. I can't remember what it is, but that's why I'm an analyst. Um, but it's a great place to see a show. It's such a cool little spot on the beach. Um, Rowayton people wouldn't appreciate you calling Rowayton Norwalk, Greg. Just, well, but, you know, you someone know. who lives in Norwalk, Rowayton's, you know, above my pay grade. Um, but I, w- <laughs> I, I will definitely be there looking like uh, below my pay grade after these two nights at Radio City. Um, it's going to be fun to hang out on the beach and see dogs uh, and see Jeff do his thing with Jed. It, it's going to be great. And again, the Edwards Brothers, man, are up and comers. They're really young. So uh, be on the lookout for them and, and any of their outfits. They really put on a good show. We'll be right back with our interview with D. James Goodwin right after this word from our sponsors. Great Beyond back with yet another accomplished guest who we aspire to be like not to be confused with the james goodwin but d james goodwin or dan welcome to the great beyond thanks y'all i appreciate being here yeah thanks for coming on man you may i brought um, brought my friends the tree frogs (laughs) you may hear some sounds of nature uh in the background that is not um the concrete metropolis that Joey and I are trapped in, um, but they are real, real tree frogs. So um, welcome. You know, we're we're approaching drip fields rapidly and we're so excited to hear the album. Um, a brand new endeavor with a set of fresh ears for Goose. And I think, you know, people are already really talking about the new directions things are heading in and we're going to talk a little bit more about that soon, but give us a, a little background from the beginning. What brought you to goose? What brought goose to you? Uh, good question. Apparently Trevor reached out to me well before this record actually. And I never wrote back <laughs> or at least it took me like two weeks to write back and then uh, something else happened. But um, as far as I remember, I think Ben, uh, Baruch was the first to reach out to me and just said, Hey, I, I represent this band goose. They're looking to make a new record and your name has come up, uh, as somebody to maybe produce it. Um, and my, I think my initial reaction as usual is like, great, you know, I'll just like check out some stuff. And I wasn't really familiar with goose. Um, I'm not really part of the jam scene per se, even though I work with a lot of guys, um, and women who are in that world, but um i did a little bit of research and watched i think i watched maybe it was arrow live or something and i was like oh these guys can play and then there was another song i don't remember what it was i think it was something they'd been playing forever and i heard rick's voice and i was like oh okay yeah i can totally make this record because like without rick's voice it's it's a band of really great players but like a lot of bands in that that a lot of jam bands, and I hate using that term, but a lot of jam bands don't have the greatest singers. They have great instrumentalists, you know, but Rick, Rick's voice is what totally turned me. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll have this conversation. And then um, we had like a Zoom meeting, me, Peter, Rick, and Ben, and, and I think one of the other managers, and it was really great. And then the rest is sort of history. So when you, when you are delving into a potential new client, um besides the angelic voice what are some things you're looking for i guess it's the intangible stuff you know the the songs have to grab me on some level um 
even more if I get this instinctual sense that the band is searching for something. That's really exciting to me. Because, you know, I work with a lot of artists who are pretty established. I mean, I've worked with Bonnie Light Horseman, who we were just talking about. And, you know, they have a sound that's sort of built in. There's not a lot to do to, like, push it around. Bob Weir I've worked with, and he's obviously pretty well established. Um, but there's an excitement in a band that's looking to, you know, in Goose's case, I could just tell and sense that, Rick especially is searching and I could tell that Peter was searching and those two are endlessly curious. And I think that made me really interested in doing it. And it was just an instinctual intangible, you know? Um, and beyond that, the songs need to be good. You know, if the songs aren't good, then it's a waste of time for me. It's like, that's, I just would rather be flipping burgers, but these guys obviously sure. were writing good songs, you know? So Yeah. Yeah. We had a little, I had a little moment in a press release um, where I, described it as the ineffable it you mm. know like that little that thing um yeah. which actually ended up being you know struck from the press release because it is not actually descriptive <laughs> um so d james i find it so funny that trevor had reached out to you yeah you just like when was that um he said it was i think he looked it up actually when we were working and it was like sometime in maybe november of 2019 or something oh wow so that's that's like it might have been shenanigans or something okay wow that's really interesting yeah um do you get many like inquiries from just like random oh yeah okay yeah. so you and sometimes i just you know if i'm really busy I, my focus is pretty narrow so i was probably smack in the middle of like three records and just you know it took me yeah. like two weeks to write back and Trevor was like, well, fuck this guy, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is really funny when. Um, so Baruch reached out to, I guess. So he had a little more of an official title. So you were like, OK, this is. Yeah, I mean, usually good. if a manager writes, it's it's yeah. you, you kind of, you know, it's a little more legitimate. But I mean, that said, I probably would have written Trevor back normally if I just wasn't really, really busy, you know. Right. right. God, you can still hear the tree frogs in here. <laughs> We'll have our man. We'll have our manager reach out next time we want to interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, i.e., Greg's wife. Yes. <laughs> so, one more follow-up question from that: um, When you first did your research of Goose, and you're kind of like, you know, going into their songs, you watched the live Arrow, you were listening to Rick's angelic voice, etc. What was your first? Um, impression of their sound at that point like i'm sure you listened to their studio albums was there anything that immediately came to mind that you were you had ideas for you had inspiration for or was it kind of like a uh crawl walk run rather than a bursting of ideas i guess it was um it was definitely a bursting of ideas but i did listen to some of the recorded stuff and then went to the live stuff because that's really where you see a band anyway you know mm -hmm. um but I think pretty quickly I had, I had the sense that if I were going to do the record, it would be important to keep some of the elements of what people love about them alive, but that I wouldn't want to make a jam band record. And that was pretty important to me. And it turned out when we talked that Rick and Peter felt the same way, like they didn't want to make a jam band record. And not that they want to do abandon that stuff, because it's obviously a huge part of it, it is what they are, you know. But um, I think they just wanted to go different places. And 
when I was watching some of the, like with Arrow, I immediately had an idea. I was like, oh, this, I could totally see where this could go. And then I think Hot Tea might've been another one I saw. And there was something else that we didn't end up working on for the record. All of which I had very pretty clear ideas on how I would like to sort of steer it. So yeah, I was, for me, it's, if I don't get ideas right away and I don't get inspired and it's just sort of like, I, I'm not that, that interested, you know? Wow. So with this stuff, I had ideas pretty quickly and it was nice to, to know that the inspiration was there. It was on tap. It was kind of ready to go. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really curious about like the different arrangements of songs <laughs> because they do, honestly, they sound way different than this band sounds. Yeah live yeah. so i'm wondering was that more your push of like i have these ideas or was the band's like did it take any convincing to change these songs i would up? love to it didn't take very much convincing i would love to say that it wasn't completely all my idea but because i know like you know i've been privy to some of the message board stuff and i've seen some people go like oh whoever you know push them in this direction sucks or whatever <laughs> but then like you know there's there's <laughs> For every person that says that, there's like 50 other people who are who like it, you know. And to me, it's like the important thing to remember is that a band live is one experience and a band on record is another one. And mm -hmm. I would much rather if it were me. I mean, part of the reason that people love jam bands is that you can go to a show three nights in the same week and they'll be entirely different and they'll play each song entirely different. And I think the fact that um, you know, I saw I when we after we had already started talking about making the record and we were well into the process of, of like figuring out how to do it. I noticed that they had like three or four versions of certain songs that they would play live. Mm -hmm. And that excited yeah. me because it made me realize like, oh, I don't need to like worry about that stuff. I don't need to be hold that dogma that like, oh, this song, this is how people know this song has to be this way. Um, and it was exciting. It was like, yeah, we can do we can make Arrow this Afrobeat song for the record. And then you guys can play it like that one night and play it your old way, you know, another night and a third way, another night, you know, and that's kind of really exciting to me because music should be experiential like that. And the record is like a document in time and it'll never change. So to me, like capturing an improvisation is cool on record for sure. And there's moments when that's really appropriate. And we did that a bunch on the record, but there's, it's like the record to me is more about the songs and the live experience is much less about the songs and the songs become a vehicle for an experience. And the record isn't really, records aren't really like that. They're, they're an experience unto themselves, you know, and they're not really vehicles anymore that it is the experience. So um, I don't remember what the original question was. I digressed, but it was probably my pushing for sure to like, push some of those arrangement things and i'm totally sensitive yeah. like i i get that there's a lot of goose fans who are like fuck this guy he totally fucked him up <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, that was know, actually I mean, yeah what, that, what that, that was actually the original question <laughs> that was, was who should oh, yeah. we you know who should we uh send all this hate mail to yeah, right um you know but i think i mean it is it's an interesting thing uh and a really really good point you know that um I think the tide of music is changing as well. You know, I had a, a call with a potential client today who talked about, and they're all early 20s, and they talked about um, how they have no plans for an album and that they want to do a new single like once a month for the next two years. 
you know, and then maybe like they'll put it together. And so, you know, to me, like I was uh, I've I've always had the album experience in mind ever sure. since my first CD, like all young black males in America, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. <laughs> um, you know, I've like this front to back is an, is an experience. And so I do think that, um, you know, having listened to Goose's early studio work, um, it's very clear that there's, I think, some more overarching direction in a certain sense, but also it's very clear how dedicated they are to creating that in studio. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I've tried not to make a lot of these interviews about me, but I will tell an interesting vignette. Um, you know, when the guys were starting starting to work with you last year uh, up in Woodstock at the Isacon, which I believe is your former location. Yeah. Now former. Yep. That was um, one of the last one of the the last three records done there was Dripfield. Beautiful location, picturesque, almost nestled in the side of a mountain uh, up in Woodstock. Um, but I, I, I remember Rick texting the kind of team group chat early on in the process, maybe the first week. And people had been planning on coming up to visit, myself included. Uh, and he said something like, we don't want anyone coming up like we're cooking right now. Like the vibe is perfect. Um, and, you know, me being the person who apparently struggles to follow rules was up there three weeks later. Uh, and so got to your 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 place, I think, shortly after uh, Stuart Bogey, friend of the podcast, hopefully soon, yeah. um, sent back the the. Oh, right. His recordings. Yeah. Right. And so I got yeah. I was there for the first um arrow experience <laughs> and yeah. so i think you know i think it's incredible i think it's an absolutely incredible look um the kind of juxtaposition of the frenetic live energy versus um piano and rick's voice is uh really cool kind of watercolor look at a lot of what this band can offer yeah but i'm wondering you know from hearing because this had never been on wax before mm -hmm. like where did the idea to add horns come from that was a pretty early one. I, when I first got the demo, when I saw the live recording, I had one idea and then Rick and Peter sent me a demo of Arrow and I think it might've been a rehearsal recording or something. And, um, you know, it was very different. It was as most people probably remember it from pretty recently, like very fast, um, fairly funky, you know, kind of an upbeat number. And I think just something struck me listening to it. I was like, I think, I'm just thinking Fela Kuti, you know, and like having that vibe would be so cool. And I knew Ben could pull it off. And, and with that in mind, you know, Stu, uh, Stu Bogey was a member of Antibalas for a long time mm -hmm. and has played a ton of Afrobeat stuff in his life. And he just knows that stuff inside out. And it felt like, yeah, this was a place I really want horns on the record. There were a going into the record. There were probably maybe even three more songs that I wanted horns on, on the record, but as we developed the arrangements, it turned out not to be appropriate. Uh, I think Honeybee was one I originally wanted horns on. Um, but I ended up doing the synth thing that kind of covered that ground in a way that I liked better. But uh, Hot Tea, we did horns on. <clears throat> I forget, there might have been one other one. Other one. But um, but yeah, it was a pretty early idea to have Stu on. And I've wor I work with Stu so much. He's just amazing. He's brilliant. And it was kind of a no-brainer. And I wish that, you know, we were sort of like still pretty well into COVID at that point, pre-vaccination and stuff. So Stu coming up wasn't really an option. So we had him do it remotely, but having him come up would have been amazing. That would have been great. 
but it actually though him doing it at home afforded him the opportunity to really shed out that arrangement which was ridiculously good and in fact i think i don't want to spoil anything but i think the two might be doing a uh one of the we're gonna stew in myself oh wow um, <laughs> speaking of spoilers um do you not exactly spoilers but what song are you most excited for fans to hear for the first time good question that? um hmm maybe i don't mind drip field maybe yeah but they've already heard that they've heard already it, yeah. heard it but you know i guess you can answer that in two ways like if it's already been released like that's fine too but i guess out of the unreleased songs so oh far, yeah what do you um, most? Well, actually, the most exciting to me is not on the record, and it's the Travelers Elmag stuff. That's definitely really, really to, really to me. Too. To me, that's the best. I mean, we did a lot of great work on the record, but I feel like Travelers Elmeg is a whole because I think he's the, Rick and I had this conversation the other day. In fact, because we're, we're talking about the next record and working on the next record, and we both wanted to be kind of a banger and a ton of improvisation really getting some of that live energy that some of the fans are pissed off about but like bringing it back to record but the good thing is we already we already made that record and we experimented a lot and we sort of did that and proved to ourselves that we can do that so now if we're going to go make a banger of a record it's just a, we don't have there's no expectations on it we can just do it and have fun but and i feel like travelers elme kind of bridge that gap because we had established this really great working relationship doing the record stuff and then we made some of the EP stuff too, which nobody's heard. And then we came in later and did Travelers Elmeg, and it really, really, really captures the band live. Like there's an extended jam section, which is like nine minutes long on the Travelers recording. That's so exciting. It's like one of the coolest improvised moments that I've that I've personally put to record and that I've heard on really any record. It's so good. And so I'm super excited about that. But on the record, I'm also excited. Probably like Honeybee. I think Honeybee is a beautiful recording. I love that one. I love, um, I mean, honestly, Slow Ready is pretty, pretty sweet, you know? And I, to, for people to hear that, I would be pretty excited about because it's a very, very different version of that song. Spicy. Yeah, yeah. Really spicy. It's very spicy. And I still love yeah, my I video idea it. for that song. We just have to make it, but it's going to take forever. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah I, I really dug the uh like the new the hot tea version because like it oh, sounds yeah. like and I don't know if I don't know if the were the horns recorded separately for that because it sounds like a yeah. collective they were but jam, I like, yeah my whole my whole approach to that was I wanted it to sound like the dudes were jamming in a room, you know. Yeah and and what we did actually on that song is we tracked the body of the song and then we did overdubs to it. So um you know, like the first tracking was Ben on drums, Trevor on bass, of course, Jeff on some percussion, Rick on guitar and singing, and Peter on, um, on I think he tracked that on Rhodes, maybe. And then we did a second layer of overdubs where Peter moved to, maybe he moved to Hammond, Oregon, and then I played some guitar, Rick played another guitar, Jeff played different percussion, and Ben played different drum stuff. And so we, we overdubbed as a band on top of the band. And then we did that a third time, switching it around even more. So it ultimately sounds like there's like 12 people in a room, just like 
you know, some dude just picks up a riff and then the, like the other 11 people join in. And that's totally what I wanted that to yeah. feel like. I wanted it to feel sort of loose and I wanted it to feel like a bunch of guys in a room doing a ton of heavy drugs. And, <laughs> and that's kind of what it was. I mean, we weren't doing heavy drugs, but that's what it felt like. And I think we accomplished that pretty well, but the horns, it was important to me that the, even though the horns were recorded separately, I wanted them to feel like, so I'd like, I put speakers out in my live room and recorded the live, the horns going through that, put it back into the recording. So it sounds like they're in the room with the band and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. okay. so go see your guy before your stream party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that, that struck me the most uh, about how quickly this all came together is and this is, you know, as someone who's been working on his debut album for 15 years, mm -hmm. um, you know, it seems like this came together really fast. And I'm wondering how that compares, you know, with the wide scope of artists you've worked with. Was this something that happened particularly quickly, um, you know, with just inspiration and things rolling? Was it time constraints um, or was it just kind of another day uh, in the office? Um, it actually did come together pretty quickly. Yeah, because I think Ben and I first talked, uh, Brooke and I first talked in January or December, maybe of 2020. And then Rick, Peter and I had a Zoom thing, uh, maybe January of 2021. Or sorry. Yeah, am I right about that? Yeah, 2021. God. Um, and we were working by March. So yeah, it worked out really it was pretty quick. And I think part of that was because um, they didn't have a label to deal with to get like to figure out the financing and stuff. And we just sort of worked out what the budget was and, and it was like, great, let's do it. You know? And I had a bunch at that point, again, being pretty still smack in the middle of COVID, I was willing to work as long as everybody was cool with like doing tests before we worked and stuff. And, um, uh, you know, most of what I was doing at that point was mixing records unattended. So I had been alone for months mixing records and um, I didn't really have other in-person records to have to shuffle around. So it just worked out pretty easily. And, you know, we worked, we spent a good deal of time on the record. I mean, I think we tracked originally for three weeks and then another week and a half or so. And then I mixed a couple, a month later. Uh, and that was about a week and a half. So, yeah, I mean, it was not a short record, but it also wasn't crazy long. We just sort of went in and did a song a day for the most part. Um, and that's like, that, that's usually how I like to work, but yeah, we, it, the whole process was fairly streamlined, you know, it's funny cause it takes them so long to get on stage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I will say this the, and I, and I, I have to figure out a kind way to say this because I love right, these go guys after to it. death, but this is a safe space. they are the slowest working band I've ever worked with. No, oh, without, yeah. without question. <laughs> totally. Like sometimes if, cause you've got the five of them and if they all get in the different directions of getting distracted by something, forget it. It's like another hour before I get them all in the studio again. And it drives me insane. It took me, cool. uh, what's that? You play it pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally cool. I've gotten used to it now, but um, I mean, the thing is like, I can feel, I mean, I would feel time like, if we got done tracking a tune and I was doing some editing and then everybody got distracted and did whatever for a while, then I could, you know, plug in a guitar and play some shit on it or a keyboard. So I could fill my time and still be productive. But yeah, it was like when I, it was it, it, like without fail every hour, it was like, where's Rick? Oh, I don't know. He like took a walk into the woods. 
All right, where's Peter? He's on some <laughs> Zoom call with Baruch. And Trevor was Trevor was pretty much the only guy that was actually in the room at like all times. And he was just down for whatever. But, it, but paradoxically, Trevor was the person who had the least to play all the time because he would play his bass part and be done for like the rest of the day. So he but he was always around, you know. That is so funny. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, the uh, idiosyncratic ways of recording with the guys, it seems like you're a huge creature of habit from yeah. what I've seen. And I, I feel like that is maybe a necessity for what you do and being so successful in what you do just because the days are so long, they're so tedious and you're literally wrapped in a project, you know, yeah. very deeply for an extended period of time. But were you always like that or did you, you know, have to change your ways to like become a creature of habit to adapt to that? Or have you always remembered just, you know, going into those routines? Yeah. I think I've always probably been a creature of habit really. Yeah. But I, I sort of thrive on instability in some level. It's inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a constant battle internally, but I definitely like I have my patterns and, you know, when I'm working, if I'm like working for an hour or two, I need to have a cigarette break, go outside, collect my head, think about what I'm doing. And um, there's definitely a huge part of that in my work day. But yeah, I think, I think there's a little bit of instability that I like. And even, you know, my, my partner, Monique, she's all over the place and I'm the opposite. So it's like, I think I just need some of that chaos in my life to, I don't know, make it interesting or something. And not that, not to say that the goose guys are chaos, but you know, like if I have my way of working and then those guys came in and had their way of working, it was tough to get used to for the first couple of weeks. So speaking of chaos, um, you know, I've seen you play. I don't even know how many instruments, like random instruments in the studio, even like rusty old chains. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know where you get this stuff, but you, <laughs> it's almost like I don't want this to come off as being, you know, negative, but it's almost like this like old junkyard and yeah, you're yeah. just making incredible sounds out of all of these things. And in addition to that, you pretty much play every instrument like ever made. So that's just such a cool you know, component of what you offer as a yeah. producer. But so as you're mastering, are you coming up with ideas of what could be added in or were those ideas always a part of the plan or is it a mix of both? Is it pretty sporadic? It's a mix of both, but I'd say it probably leans more random than not. Mm. Um, you know, there's always when we're working on something, when if the band's in the room tracking a song, I'm, I'm always like, okay, I, I think I have an idea for a part there or that, but it's not until I start building the world kind of that I really start to hear it happen. And then if I, I have an idea usually of a sound that I want in a song more so than a part. And then, so I'll find the instrument that's going to give me that sound. And then the part comes from there. Sorry about my light flickering. I don't know why it's doing that. Um, but yeah, so like for instance, um, a track like Arrow, I knew that there, I wanted some, you know, we attract the main body of the song. And then I knew I wanted some sort of chaotic guitar element somewhere um, that was kind of just noisy and a little bit sort of unhinged. And so I plugged in a couple things that would get me there to that place. And then I just let it roll and see what happened. And I played a few things and that's all that like 
weird scronky guitar stuff that you hear in the back half of the song um mm. yeah so things like that it just it the parts aren't really there in my head immediately but the sounds are and the soundscape is because that to me is the world you know like the types of trees aren't important it's just i know that the hill needs trees mm. and then once i start walking closer to the hill i'm like oh yeah i don't want pine trees i want um a hemlock tree and then over here i want you know, uh, pruning oak or whatever, flowering oak tree. That's sort of how I liken it in my head. Yeah. Would you say you have them like categorized? Like you're saying, like you have a certain type of sound that you want, you have the specific instruments that fit that sound, or is there sometimes crossover where an instrument you never thought could fit a certain sound does? Oh yeah. All the time, all the time. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's, um, you know, sometimes it's like, oh man, I remember this thing I did 10 years ago where I plugged this into that and did this weird thing with that. And I think that might get me there. But other times it's just a total um, random chance, you know, like when we were working on arrows, another example, when we were doing the beginning, we wanted each of those drum hits in the beginning to be more than just like a drummer hitting a drum. And we just like walked into the kitchen and I was like, let's pull all the shit out of the cupboards and drop it on the floor and see what that does you know and that's what we did all the pots and pans and just like slammed it on the floor and i think there was a chain in there like karina said and like some other stuff and it was pretty you know and that was just one of those random things where it's like it needs this sound i don't quite know what it is but i think i have an idea of how to get there so let's just start trying to get there and then often on the on the way of getting there you get sidetracked and it's it's you don't even sometimes get to the place you thought you were going to go because you plug something in you're like oh wow that's not what i thought it was but it's really cool so i'm going to do it you know um that's the stuff that's really exciting to me yeah wow that's what my album was missing i just need to take everything out of my pot like all my pots and pans out and throw them around yeah that's it yeah. sightseeing I mean, on the cake sometimes it is is, is it, you just have to destroy <laughs> stuff to like get to a place that you never thought it could go and, and oftentimes, this is a really great, actually, the Goose Records is such a great example of this, because I feel like with some of these arrangements, it was, excuse me, it was kind of like, I forget the song, but I remember Rick saying, like, I don't know what to do with this song. We've had this song forever. I feel like the truth is still out there. Rick likes to say that the truth is still out there. And um, it might have been like Born or something. And it was just, you know, like the path of getting there required us to just sort of destroy all the preconceptions that we had, that they had and that I had about it. And in doing so, you just, if you're open to that, if you're open to like killing your darlings, the things that you've loved for a long time, if you're open to doing that, just beautiful stuff happens when you do that in all sorts of art, you know? I do it in like, I'm a photographer, photographer on the side and I find that all the time if I'm like looking at something about to take the picture and then I'm like, wait a minute, this is fucking boring. And then like pull the camera away and look at things differently. And then suddenly you're like, oh, right, I can look at it this way. And it's very cool. It just you just have to like keep your mind open to that stuff constantly. Wow. Yeah, I guess. How do you destroy a song that do you like go back, like right back to the lyrics Lyrics. Is that the starting place? Like, do you Definitely. change the key? Yeah, yeah all, all I guess of it. that's the beginning of. Yeah, to me, there's no holds barred. It's like you go back to the lyrics and then start there. What's the song about? You know, 
And Rick and I have done that a bunch. Like you may want to cut this out, but the waking end stuff that Rick and I are working on, a lot of that was like, Rick didn't know what it was going to be, but he had the lyrics and kind of like vague musical ideas. And so a couple of the things we had to go in and just completely just pull back down to the lyrics and say, okay, what is this line saying? What is that line saying? What is this song saying? And how do we want to feel from that? And then start there and then just like see what happens, you know? And it's, it's a mark to me of a very brilliant artist if they will allow a producer to come in and help them do that because it's trust, it's deep trust. And I think, you know, Rick, Peter and I, uh, particularly Rick and I have, I think, established a pretty deep trust with that stuff. And there's like no, to me, it doesn't get better than that. Mm-hmm. You know, like spending spending time in a room with somebody who you implicitly trust and they implicitly trust you to be vulnerable in that kind of situation and to pull, you know, to have me like pull apart material that he's had for 10 years just requires the utmost trust in not only the process, but in me. And that's just like a beautiful thing, you know? And we did that a lot on the record. And I feel like we can do it a lot more now because we already made that record. And and it was, I think we were pretty successful in making the record we wanted to make. Even if some fans don't find it to be sort of the goose record that they were hoping for, what I hope they hear out of it is like a band that wants to explore and wants to to do different things. And that to me is way more important than a band that just wants to like kick ass, you know? Right. I mean, and you know, also that's what soundboards are for, you know, there's plenty of goose that we all like to listen to. Well, that was Uh, the first um, thing I said to the guys when we talked, I was like, you literally have hundreds of hours of live recordings. Like we don't need to make that recording. If you, if you guys want to make that kind of record, you've already made it. You just release that as the record. So like, let's do something different, you know? So there is like um, one of the things I've heard, I think just through this, through this conversation and, 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 uh, and meeting you is that it seems like nature and your natural setting really, really plays an impact on what you create. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit more about really just that and, and how, where you are, you know, um, and, and, and that kind of given situation and everything around you impacts what is able to come out of you as an artist. Sure. Um, I, I think I always sort of think about the work that I do as it's, there's a lot of parallels with film to me. And um, my, one of my favorite things visually, both as a photographer and as a filmmaker and watching films and seeing photographs is just like large, expansive landscapes. That's always been a huge inspiration to me. And so having always lived for the most part in upstate New York, spent very little time living in the city, which I hated and a little bit of time on the West Coast, which I did like to a degree, but I, I've just never found myself at ease in city environments. Um, and I find myself at ease when I'm the tiniest thing in this expanse of, of natural objects. I have no other real way to say that. But for instance, my partner and I go out to Wyoming and Montana every year. And it, to me, that's like where my heart feels most content. And I think that informs the work I do because I just like space and I like taking time to do things. And um, 
finding where things belong in the in its environment. And I think that all just sort of in, just holistically um, integrates itself into the work that I do without even really being conscious of it. But my studio, like you said, was in uh, Woodstock and it was sort of on the side of a hill in the woods. And um, my new studio is in an, an old IBM building. It's very strange, very different than the last one. And in fact, I'm moving it yet again um, in a month to a new place, which is in Kingston, in the middle of town, in the middle of a, a proper city. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that does, but it's a big space and I can sort of, you know, I play films all day long while we're working, which is a lot of fun. And that allows me to sort of transport myself to that place if I'm not naturally already there. Wow. That is so, it must be, so what's like the biggest reason why you left the IBM building, the lack of uh, running water or? <laughs> you Mac, you Mac guy? Yeah, the ghost. Yeah, I'm a Mac guy. I'm a Mac guy. And I, I had to, I could, my computer didn't work anymore. Um, it was, well, it was a combination. The climate stuff was an issue for sure, because there's no, all the systems in the building are kind of shut off. So I had to improvise with heat and air conditioning, which was difficult. Um, the space is great. I love the space itself that I'm in. I'm in the old conference room and it's very cool. But the county who owns the building, who I rent from, um, just sold the building to a developer. So the primary impetus was I knew that this was transitional anyway. It was just like when the last place that I was in, the owner died during COVID and the daughter took it over and was selling it. So I had to leave. Um, although I'd been there for 12 years, that was a very tough move, you know, um, but I moved into the IBM, IBM building as a trans, uh, sort of transitional phase. And um, I always knew it was going to come to an end. So I just sort of preempted being forced out of there and, and, and moving in July. And also Rick hates the IBM building. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, he hates he, it. He said, you know, he said it's definitely a vibe. I think that's what he said. He's like, it's yeah. definitely a vibe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think our last thing that we did um, for Waking End was much different than the Sinnerman stuff we did last year. Right. Because right. like the Sinnerman stuff, for one, it was the stress of getting that done. It was like we had to have it done in like three days. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very hard to record that song, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was also incredibly hot. And the AC had to be shut off in between takes. So it was like brutally hot. And I think Rick was also stressed out health-wise um, last September. So it was like just this confluence of terrible things. And, <laughs> and I think he conflated that with the place a little bit. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's just not good, you know, energy. In a oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. So... I have a kind of a, you know, switching topics question for you, but mm -hmm. um, I kind of know the answer to this a little bit, but I think that it's very interesting of, you know, what I've heard so far from you. But so with your general taste in music, you have a very, from what I know, you have a very like diverse, you're into some really interesting, like deep stuff that I've mm -hmm. never heard of before, but how does Goose fit in with your taste in music and like the genres that you like to listen to and did you when you were first you know kind of to jump back to the question I asked you like 20 minutes ago um have you listened to like jam bands before <laughs> well I'll say this I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I was taken to a fish show 
when I was 16 or 17, it was fish and widespread panic. Wow. And Ooh. yeah. And widespread panic sucked. I hated it. I like, I hated every second of it to me at the friends time, of the podcast. Yeah. Well, to me at the time it, it was, it was just a, like the sound was bad. Um, it, and it was like a weird performance. I felt like they were disconnected from the crowd. Mm. And so, um, but it also, they, something happened where like the, in the big, uh, I forget what venue it was, but in the, that main house fill on the right side kept going out. So it was just really, really frustrating to listen to. So I don't even think it was a fault of the band. It was just like a bad, just a bad night. But then Fish played. I think they took a bit of a, of a intermission and like sorted out the sound stuff. And Fish played. And I remember thinking like, like the band wasn't what I thought it was. And I don't know how to say that other than I just had this impression. It was basically like the Grateful Dead and a bunch of like stoners playing music. And I realized like there were actually songs, you know, um, but that said, I never really got beyond that. I never got into jam band music per se. I never disliked it. I just never really listened to it. Um, I think I always sort of retreated from the live, um, the, the crowds at jam band shows. I've just never been into the tailgating scene and stuff. Um, and then, you know, I was never a fan of the Grateful Dead just by dint of the fact that I never listened to them. And then when I became friends with Josh Kaufman, who him and I now have worked on dozens and dozens of records together. I remember the first time he told me he was a huge deadhead and I was like, what? It's just so weird. It seems completely anathema to what you do. And he was like, no, dude, trust me, listen. And so I like listened to like Working Man's Dead or something. It was like, oh, oh yeah, this is totally not what I thought it was. And then I became a dead fan, not a huge one. I'm not a deadhead, but um, when I first met Bob Weir to work on his record, he was like, uh, do you like the dead? And I was like, nah, not really. <laughs> he was like, oh, I, I respect you being honest with me. And he actually liked the fact that I wasn't a deadhead because I wasn't like a sycophant about it. Like, oh, dude, what did you guys do in Europe 72, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I th how does Goose fit in? I, Goose fits in in this weird place that's sort of, I look at Goose like I'm a huge jazz fan. So I think in a way I think of Goose as like some strange combination of jazz music and something like Radiohead. Mm -hmm. And to me, if I can just sort of like have that fill that place for me, it's really cool, you know? Mm -hmm. And and then it, it working with them actually made me realize that a lot of jam bands are basically jazz bands in a rock kind of clothing. And that made it a lot more interesting to me when I think about it that way. I mean, I've heard a lot of jam bands since working with Goose that orbit around you know the world i mean obviously like joe russo is somebody i've worked with for years so his whole scene i know um and scott metzger and guys like that and and there's a lot of people i know sort of peripherally in the jam world that are have always been doing different interesting stuff one thing i will say is i i know i've always respected jam band audiences because they are the most loyal and they seem to be the most interested in music it's like indie rock kids don't, you know, they're so irritating and annoying because they're pretentious. They think they're better than everybody else. And, you know, if they didn't find it first, they don't think it's good. And then if they do find it first, they get pissed off when everybody else finds it. It's like such an annoying thing about indie rock fans. 
And it's also really, it like lasts for two weeks and then they, they move on to something else. But like jam band fans just care about the music. And that stuff's very cool to me. I mean, that's the whole reason I make music is because I want people to enjoy it, you know? Um, so one thing I've definitely sort of seen repeatedly through working with Goose is that they're generally speaking, the bands are interested in making cool music and the fans are interested in listening to it. It's like, how much better does it get, you know? And I think like the, you know, the jam band world gets a lot of shit for that, but I don't know. I don't think there's really reason to give them shit. I just, I don't think I was ever a part of it. So I didn't, I just never understood it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Dogs. yeah. Uh, and it's I feel like you, you, you have to be such a huge music fan to even be in the jam scene like as a fan, because yeah. if you're not, you're just going to hear the same thing over and over. Like you're right. going to all these shows. It's not going to sound different to you. Right. But if you are educated in music, you could tell that even the tiniest differences. But even with Goose, I mean, like you said, they switch up the songs to the point where like anyone could tell, oh, this Indian River sounds totally different from this Indian River. And I think yeah, like yeah. Atlas Dogs, they just play it totally different. So, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I don't know I'm if that's it, normal. I guess is that normal for most bands in the jam scene to play to have numerous iterations of a song like that? I don't think this much. Right. Fish has right. like a couple slower versions of songs, like they just did that slow maze, which was totally new. But like, yeah. I feel like Goose right out of the gate was like, let's do a million different versions of all our songs. I mean, yeah. Rick and Karina would know way more than me, but. I mean, yeah, I found that I guess, endlessly interesting when, when we first started working, Rick would play me like three versions of a song. And I was like, dude, don't you guys, like, you've been playing this for years. Don't you know which one you play? And he's like, yeah, we just do it differently, you know, all the time, depending on mood. And at first I couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, that's so fucking weird. Like I've never worked with an artist <laughs> that does that. But then I realized it's, it's totally a jazz thing. That's like a jazz thing. And then I started to love it. I was like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with that idea. Because, you know, like if you listen to an artist like Miles Davis from the late 60s and probably mid 60s, he was kind of screwing with that form a little bit, but he would play the same. They would have like one head and that head would be different every time. And you would recognize the melody, but that's all you'd recognize from it. The whole the, the rhythm section was different. The accompaniment was different. The comping was different. Everything was different, but the melody was the same. And that was it. And it's, it's similar when, when Goose plays, you know, four different versions of whatever song. And yeah, it took me a minute to wrap my head around it, but now I, I'm totally in love with it. I think it's amazing. And the fact that they get away with that and people don't like freak out is incredible because like pop music yeah. fans have no tolerance for that shit. They just want the one piece of candy. They like that flavor of candy for that period of time. And then that's, that's it. You know, you can't give them another piece of candy. And that's, that says a lot about not only goose fans, but jam band fans in general, but I guess goose fans in, in particular. Oh, well, it seems like you are a officially a jam band fan. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Yeah. welcome. I think so. I never I thought so. I would be either. I mean, oh, really? I, I mean, definitely not. I mean, seeing goose has almost like fucked me up because now when i see other concerts of like yeah indie performers and not to say that every indie performer is like this but i crave that you know spur of the moment you know that improvisational component to yeah. live shows that now i'm like tarnished like right. you know right it's it's almost a curse yeah. but yeah i too love it yeah i wouldn't what I hope is that 
and I, I suspect this will be the case, but I hope that um, when fans hear Dripfield, they appreciate what we were trying to do and they understand that we weren't trying to make a live performance and put it on record. You know, like that's the biggest thing it, because I hate the idea that somebody would think like, oh, this fucking hotshot indie producer came in and like changed the whole band. And it's like, that's not really how it went. You know, we went there together and we did it, it with an explicit purpose not to make a jam record because you can go see them live and see that record, you know? Um, but I hope that people recognize that because I think it's, I don't know. I think it's the key to a long career is you're, if you're exploring and always open to exploring those different forms. Absolutely. There's no disclaimer necessary for this album, right? You know, it's a damn good piece of work. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there, there is so much to it. And I think we, we've harped on a couple, a couple scenes. And it's funny that those are the kind of the two scenes that the band is dancing in between. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and Rick is conscious. Do. Like I, we talked the other day about the Rolling Stone thing and he was like, Oh man, I think I just sounded like a total asshole. And I was like, dude, you, you didn't at all you know people you want to explore different things there's nothing wrong with expressing that and you're not dissing anybody else and you know um i think he's just afraid like most people are especially when you're successful at what you do you're afraid of alienating people who've like come to love a certain thing about you you know um but you know you just learn to navigate it i mean it is what it is yeah, i'm a pretty just... opinionated guy so i've like dealt with my fair share of stuff in the past and my career of like people being alienated by something I've done or, you know, records I've worked on that seem weird for me to work on kind of stuff. Not that I'm the same as an artist because people don't really give a shit about producers, but <laughs> you know, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it is, I, there is such an intersection with fandom here. And I think to your point also, with the jam world, there's a little bit more of that intimacy because of the grassroots growth of so much of this. I mean, it was the same yeah. with the dead, right? So yeah. many people feel like they are a part of this as they are. We love each and every one of you listening. Uh, but, you know, like as they are and on the ground level, right? It's like yeah. buying those tickets and, and selling out of places, you know, we never thought the band would sell out. And so I certainly understand that ownership. Um, but you know, with the jam world comes the headier than thou attitude. Um, so welcome uh, to both of you to the jam world. Your tie dyes are, are coming in the mail. Um, <laughs> I will yeah. say, I will say my, this might help my bona fides. I, my first car was a 1975 Volkswagen bus. And um, we tore out the back seats, put a recliner in it. I was a, you know, a huge, huge head in school, pothead in school. And this was our, you know, it was a, our smoking mobile. So we would like, we would take acid and drive around. I mean, it was terrible. And I was in this Solve fucking, mysteries with Scooby and the gang. Yeah. I was in this bright red Volkswagen van and then it blew up. It caught on fire and actually exploded with my band's um, equipment in it uh, when I was like 17. But that was my first car. So I think I have some credentials. That's your street cred there. You're, yeah, totally. you're, you're good on shakedown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I worked the stage so, okay. for Woodstock 94. Not that that's like, you know, it was Woodstock 94. Oh, nice. It is what it is. It's the one that went well. The one that went well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess one last question I wanted to ask is, uh, what is your outlook, I guess, like how surprised or maybe it was the plan all along that like the 
release of this album is coinciding with their debut at Radio City. Is that something that's hyping up the release totally of the album insane. even more for you? Yeah, it's insane. I mean, I th- feel like, it, you know, I knew that there, there were obviously the trajectory was on the up when we were working together. Uh, but I remember when they announced the Radio City shows, I called Rick immediately. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? That's insane. I mean, you know, I've seen Roger Waters there. I've seen David Gilmore there. I've seen, who else did I see there? I saw Paul McCartney there. I mean, you know, that's a pretty insane place to play. And the fa- and actually, I have to admit that Red Rocks also was a big one. Because even though I'm not in the jam world, Red Rocks is a pretty revered venue. I mean, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's really inspiring. And it's, a, you know, it's iconic. So the fact that these guys are playing Red Rocks, Headlining, and Radio City, I mean, it was totally mind-blowing to me. And two nights, uh, mm. you know, on top of it is crazy. So, yeah, I mean, all this stuff... I did not expect that. I totally didn't expect that. I figured, what I really figured is that this record would do really well. It would kind of establish them as not just another jam band. And they were serious musical thinkers. And then, you know, another record cycle would go by. Hopefully we'd make another record together. And then they'd be, you know, like a little bit more sort of like in five years, they would be doing something like playing Radio City. You know what I mean? So it's kind of crazy that it's happening now. It's really, it's really insane. Well, yeah. it'll be interesting to see where we are five years from now. No doubt. It'll be like, oh, let's just record the f- first version of Tumble. Call it a day. <laughs> um, awesome. Awesome. Well, we no, should no, wrap at that here. point. At that point, Rick will probably make me record things that I didn't want to record for the first record. Or, yeah, or you'll be playing um, like Rusty Chains uh, next to Jeff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Rena, you got anything else before I? Um. Well. Do I? Do I? Do I? Do I? I mean, I do, but you do. Uh, Go ahead. No. Uh, okay. Well, well, D James, if you want to do like, this is like a big life question. So, sure. if you want to do a, you know, kind of, well, you know, whatever, whatever feels natural. Actually, what am I saying? Um. So, I was going to ask about your early days. So I know that that could be a hefty question to throw in at the end of a podcast, but, um. I was just curious to hear about if you had like a really influential mentor when you were young. And I mean, I don't know much about your world that you're in, but Mm -hmm. from what I predict is that you work in a really unique and special way. And I'm just curious if that was what you discovered on your own or if you, you know, had a lot of inspiration from another mad scientist. Sure. Um, I did have, two mentors really one was this guy john holbrook who actually died um a year and a half ago he was an older english guy when i started assisting for him as an engineer in i want to say the late 90s early 2000s i was just out of high school in i I graduated in 95 so you know in 1992 or three i started interning in a recording studio And most of that was just like making coffee, cleaning toilets and stuff like that. And for me at the time, it was just like, oh, I I just need to be around music because I'm in a band. This is the most important thing to me. I'm going to like figure out just how to be around it. And then um, as luck would have it, I just ended up being in the studio. I was good at it. And I was always the guy too in the bands in high school that had the four track in my dad's basement. And 
the um i told this story before but it's really funny actually i think i told it to peter and he laughed his ass up he was like yeah it's totally predictable i was in a band when i was like 14 or 15. we had a four track in my dad's basement and i remember the band would come over and we'd like record songs and then those guys would go home and then all night i'd re replace all of their parts and including the singer and then the no. next day I'd play them. I'd be like, check out what we did. And they'd listen to it and be like, no. dude, you changed everything we did. <laughs> so oh. I've obviously been doing this for my whole life. That's very um, Dave Grohl. Wow. He's very Dave Grohl. And at the time I was very <laughs> like, I was not transparent about it. I was like, no, no, that's your drums, Mike. Don't worry. You know, it's, uh, but um, so anyway, yeah. So I was assisting in a studio and then I met John Holbrook making a record and became his assistant for probably three or four years. And he was a big influence on me just in terms of like how to, obviously how to work, but um, how to be with people in the studio. And, and he had worked on a lot of like Isley Brothers and Natalie Merchant, and he had done a bunch of great records. And I learned a ton from him on a technical level. And then another guy I worked with um, from that point on for a couple of years was this guy, Neil Dorfsman, who, he produced records with like Mark Knopfler and um, Sting and people like that. And I assisted him for many, many records. And I, I learned a lot about vibe from him, like setting a, a sort of, a, you know, like not letting people fall into the thing of letting the studio just be this sterile environment where you have to make certain decisions, but rather you know, let it be, let the vibe sort of come to the place and then embrace that and then work within it. And I think neither of them really informed directly how I work now, but the things I collected over the years all kind of like ended up becoming what, how I work ultimately. And I think it's pretty, I think the way I work is somewhat unique to me. Um, I'd like to think it is. I mean, it might, might, might just be my ego saying that, but I think it is actually fairly different from how most people work. Um, but yeah, those two made an indelible impression on me. And it's always been, it's always been pretty important to acknowledge that. Wow. Well, thank uh, you for yeah delving in there and yeah, take it away, Greg. On that side. Okay. You know what? We'll save this for the next <laughs> album when we inevitably chat again. Sure. Um, it was really just a question about the VW bus. Uh, okay. So um <laughs> The windshield yeah, wipers didn't work, by the way. Oh, there we so go. I, so I had to tie a string on, between the both windshield wipers outside and through back into the cab of the van. And it was a, a stick shift. So I, whenever it rained, I would have to bring a passenger. And that passenger would have to like do this with the string for the windshield wipers <laughs> while I drove and shifted. Because there was no power steering. And the fucking steering wheel was like the size of my entire torso. So, yeah. you know, I'd have to like do this to turn and the other person would be like you know pulling the string for the um, windshield wipers it was it was comical it was amazing wow yeah well that answers my final question um <laughs> <laughs> so dan thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us my honor. um thank you for all of your hard work on this project and everything that that is to come I won't say what that is, um, but we're so excited for this to get to everybody's ear holes and, you know, just have a, a big summer um, of watching these guys tour these tunes around that they've worked on for for such a long time. So we appreciate um, every last thing you've done and we appreciate you being here with us. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for coming, man. Love you all. Thanks to you, James. You the best. You the best. Once again, we want to thank our guest, D. James Goodwin, for stopping by, only getting us more and more excited for the release of Dripfield on Friday, June 24th. We've got some big episodes planned for the summer, so be sure to keep an eye out for those popping up on socials if we post. Yeah, we've had some technical difficulties, including for our lives, but <laughs> do keep an eye out for our regularly <laughs> scheduled Goose Day Tuesday lives while the while the band is on tour, next one will be next Tuesday, June 28th, where we'll be giving our firsthand accounts of the Radio City shows, as well as the Bailey Beach show we talked about with Dawes in a Pile and Jed, uh, and also the upcoming Peach Fest, where we've got a few surprises for all of you. Joey, we got to get Karina on uh, one of those. Yeah, right. Jeez. Rough. We're not talking. We're trying to end this up. This is the outro, guys. <laughs> The Great Beyond is presented by Osiris Media. See, he just drains my energy. Man. I can't even oh, anyway. cry me a river, <laughs> Joey. The All Great right. Beyond is presented by Osiris Media and engineered by Greg Knight from his apartment in Brooklyn, New York. On behalf of my co-hosts, I once again like to thank D. James Goodwin for joining us today. Co-host extraordinaire, Karina. Karina, Karina, Karina. Our manager, Kathleen Knight, and most of all, you, the listeners, for tuning in. Be sure to catch a ride with us next time. It's on the pathway to the great beyond. Osiris.